Nice job, nice job, Don Bailey. Good morning, everybody. On August the 2nd of 2021, Christian author Ali Beth Stuckey tweeted that the New Zealand Olympic weightlifter Laurel Hubbard, a biological male who identifies and competes now as a female, is, quote, still a man and shouldn't compete against women in weightlifting. In response, Twitter locked the Christian author and podcaster out of her account for what they called hateful conduct. Last month, the West Point School Board in Richmond, Virginia, fired Peter Vlaming, a teacher in their district for seven years, after he stated that he could not in good conscience comply with the superintendent's order to refer to a female student as male. Though Vlaming consistently used the student's preferred name instead of the student's given name and attempted to use any pronoun out of respect, he was still fired. In 2014, the city of Houston, Texas, led by an openly lesbian mayor, subpoenaed all, I quote, all speeches, presentations, or sermons from local pastors because they had opposed an ordinance that would have forced some organizations to allow men to use women's bathrooms. This month, the American College of Pediatricians filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration out of a concern that its transgender mandate seeks to require doctors, including Christian doctors, to perform elective transgender surgeries such as double mastectomies, castrations, and phalloplasties against their religion. When Southern California Christian pastor James Doman, who once lived openly as a gay man, became a Christian, married, had children, and began to celebrate in his sermons his new married life, Vimeo canceled his account saying that his material violated Vimeo's rules. This is in spite of the fact that one can now find 58 different genders on pages such as Facebook. And though secularism now argues that gender is totally fluid, he still lost his account. In several states across America, it is a crime for a Christian counselor to assist someone who has homosexual attraction, transition, to heterosexual transaction, even if the person wants it. And in the state of California, it is a crime punishable by up to a year in prison for a long-term health care employee to willfully fail to use a resident's preferred pronoun, a crime punishable to up to a year in prison. In 2014, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission found that Jack Phillips, whose masterpiece bakery refused to place an LGBT message on a cake for a wedding of a same-sex couple, guilty of unlawful discrimination, even though same-sex marriage was illegal in the state of Colorado. The suit was not brought against Phillips because he refused to sell a cake to a gay man. He sells cakes to anyone who wants them. The suit was brought because he refused to create a work of art celebrating that which violated his Christian convictions. In the same way, we would not force a black baker to bake a cake celebrating white supremacy. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court overturned lower court's decision saying, and I quote, that the Civil Rights Commission had disparaged Philip's faith, calling Christianity despicable and characterizing it as similar to slavery and the Holocaust. What is going on? 
Well, I brought this up the last two weeks. In times past, those of us who believe in Scripture in some way or another held a majority in the U.S. Now, Bible-believing Christians are a minority, and Bible-believing Christians are facing the same kind of harassment and hostility that most minorities have had to face from most majority cultures throughout history and across the world. It's new for many of us to have to face this kind of hostility. And because it's new for many of us, although as I've said before, for those of you who are black Americans, such hostility is not new for you. And some of you uh, may even be thinking to yourself, well, for white Christians, it's probably about time you know what it felt like to be black in America for years. And, And there may be some truth to that. But many of us don't know what to do in the face of a rising hostility against Christianity. As I've mentioned before, I think these, are, these hostilities are especially focused right now, though there's no reason to think it will remain just on these issues, in four areas. Our view of religious freedom, our view of the sacredness of life, our view of marriage and the family, and our view of sexual issues, particularly sexual orientation and gender identity issues. We've talked about how Christians are being increasingly bullied in the U.S. And today we need to deal with um, what appears to be the major disagreement between Christians and secularists in America, and that is sexuality. I want to quote from Renee Sproul's book on gender where she makes the observation that sex in America is both nothing and everything. Nothing in that North Americans appear to be willing to have sex with pretty much anything at any moment for any reason. It's nothing. But it's everything in America in that you are no longer allowed to remain neutral on the subject of sex. You're being told you have to take a position, and in secularism, you're being told which position you must take. I need you to know we can talk about this politically, and politics matter. I've said that before. I want to say it again. I'm grateful that Christians are involved in politics. I support that. I'm for it. It can be the difference between life and death. It can also be discussed as a cultural issue or a social issue, and those are very important issues. But I want to make sure we understand that as Christians, we understand that the primary problem is a spiritual problem. And so Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you might want to open there because I'm going to show you in Romans chapter 1 that everything that's going on now in North America was predicted 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. In Romans 1, Paul is dealing with the gospel and how the gospel comes to save us from our sin. And as he's talking about the power of the gospel in verse 16, he begins to describe the entrapment in which humans find themselves in our sin. And I want you to see what Paul does. So just two verses before 18, he has said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. And then he describes why we need saving. And he says, God's wrath is being revealed against us. And then he says this, it is because people have neither glorified God nor given thanks to him that they become futile and their foolish hearts become darkened. So at the bottom line of why we see so much opposition to the Christian teachings about all sorts of things, but especially in this case, sexuality, is because secular North America has given up on God. Once you give up on God, your heart becomes darkened and things become futile. This is how Paul puts it, that once you've decided there is no God, once North America decides we are our our own God, then all of a sudden the, the civilizational collapse begins. So Paul says they have to suppress the truth by their wickedness now because their hearts are darkened. And Paul actually indicates the first 
sign of a civilization that is committing suicide is sexual sin. That's what he says. The first sign will be sexual sin. So he says, when God gave them up, notice that it was to their sexual desires, their impurity, so they could degrade their bodies with one another. Paul is just saying, you will know that a civilization is committing mass suicide when they become okay with sexual sin. That'll be the first sign. You'll see in, in Romans, because we'll come back to the text in a moment, that's the first among many signs, but it is the first. So what I want to say is that what happened in North America is that in sheer arrogance, and there really is no other way, because it is a rebellion against God. Secular Americans have abandoned God and have made themselves God. And when you make yourself God, the only mandate left is the cruel and relentless drive to satisfy your lusts. What else is there? If there is no God, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There is nothing else if there is no God. And so all life has left is what you might call a hedonistic ethic. That is an ethic that says the highest good in life is to satisfy your desires. And I just want to say about America's hedonistic sex ethic, because that is the ethic that we have, hedonism. If I weren't a Christian, I'd probably be a hedonist too. Because if there is no God, what's the point of life? If there is no God, then you might as well grab whatever desire you can get before you die. So in a sense, hedonism is the necessary ethic of a godless person. And that means hedonism interprets sex as the acquisition, we'll say, of as much sexual satisfaction as you can possibly get. You know, when Jesus talks about this, he compares that ethic with holiness. And so in Mark, the seventh chapter, Jesus is talking about what defiles a person, what makes a person unholy. And he lists at least three different sexual sins to say that when you commit these sexual sins, you are no longer in sync with the way God set up the universe or in the will of God. And so he says, this is what makes you unclean. Sexual sin, that's a general umbrella term that includes all sorts of sins, adultery, and lewdness. The word lewdness, by the way, means when you act sexually shameful, or it's odd to me that the word shameless and shameful sometimes mean the same thing. When you conduct yourself sexually in such a way that you ought to be ashamed and you're not. Now, what are the sexual sins of hedonism? Well, I suppose that if we started a list it might take us a year to finish it. But I'll show you some of the ones that are mentioned in Scripture. Sex before marriage. If you're having sex with someone that you're not married to, it's a sin. It is a violation not only of the holiness of God, but of the designed order of the universe. Sex outside of marriage. Adultery. Sensual dress or conduct. Sexualized entertainment. Sexualized marketing. Pornography. No-fault divorce where you abandon a husband or a wife because you want to go have sex with somebody else. Prostitution. Let's keep going. Same-sex activity. Inventing genders for sex, abortion, pederasty, pedophilia. By the way, just pause and say, this will be the new frontier. Y'all know that, don't you? There are now individuals making credible arguments that a pedophile is just another orientation. Y'all know it's coming. It's the next frontier in North America. Sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual molestation, rape. What do all these have in common? They're all hedonistic expressions of your willingness to use somebody else to satisfy your desires. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches us is wrong with the pagan sexual ethic, is that it misunderstands God's design for sex. 
All sin has a victim. All sin has a victim. There's no such thing as victimless sin. No such thing. And so each time America takes its sinfulness a step further, it creates another victim. So I just want to say, this hedonistic culture, the fruit of the hedonistic culture, really, it really is civilizational suicide. We in North America have been so propagandized not to see this that it might be surprising to hear someone say this. Are y'all aware of the fact that uh, MTV a couple of weeks ago gave the number one music video prize to a guy, he's got a uh, performing stage name, I, I can't pronounce it what it is. I, I really don't care, I don't wanna know what it is. This is a young artist from Atlanta. His video features him being sodomized by Satan. That's the number one video in America right now. The runner-up video is a song by a woman who goes by the name Cardi B. The name of the song is WAP. It's an abbreviation because the song is so pornographic, even the title can't be said in public. These are the number one and number two songs in America. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Chinese, and we've got Chinese brothers and sisters here, if you're a Chinese and you're looking at a civilization that is committing suicide, are you worried about North America? I wouldn't be. I would look at North America and I'd say, all we've got to do is wait a little longer. They're killing themselves. If you're a Muslim, imagine if you're Afghan, if you're a Muslim, and suddenly you look and you see this is the number one and number two song in this country, this country where 75% of the people say they're Christian, would you be worried? I wouldn't. This is a country that's committing suicide by what it does. And Paul actually says so because after saying that these people would not acknowledge God, pagans don't acknowledge God, they become darkened, their minds are out of control. Paul says the very next thing that happens is they start degrading their bodies. That's the first sign. Here's what he says. God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were flamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty. And then what happens? Once that occurs, Paul says everything just tumbles out of control. The civilization spirals into death. So listen to what occurs. And by the way, you know this happens. The crazy thing about sexual sin is that though we say it's victimless, to commit sexual sin, you have to lie, you have to cheat, you have to sneak. Think about it. Think about all the stuff. If your sexual sins were known right now, every one of us would be horrified, all but maybe 10 of you. That ought to be a sign of something. Paul says once it starts, here's what happens. You become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hating, insolent, arrogant, boastful. He says a pagan will invent ways of doing evil. They'll never run out of ways to do evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no faithfulness, no love and no mercy. These aren't just biblical descriptions. This is a culture in suicide. I want to recommend a book to you. Jennifer Roback Morris wrote the book, The Sexual State, a couple of years ago. It's a fantastic book. She gives some composite stories towards the beginning of her book of victims of America's sexual hedonism. I want to make a composite of her composite because I've got just a sermon and I have to make it quick. 
But let me tell you just a few of the victims. See, these aren't victimless crimes. Elise is a 16-year-old girl who lives, excuse me, a six-year-old girl who lives with her grandmother. Her mother lives with her mother's boyfriend. They now have a child, and Elise knows that mom prefers the new child over her. That's why she has to live with the grandmother. And so Elise hates Christmas because she can't stand sharing it with the half-sister. She hates Thanksgiving because she doesn't get to spend it with her family. And all she asks her grandmother over and over again is, why doesn't my mom love me? Why doesn't anybody want me? But you know, in North America, at least Elise's mother is free. She's free. Todd's a 30-something pipe, 30-something-year-old pipe fitter. His wife, without warning, moved out, moved in with a man, abandoned him and the three kids to go find herself. On advice of counsel, she falsely accused Todd of abusing the children, and she won primary custody. Now Todd, against his will, total by surprise, lives in a tiny apartment, pays thousands of dollars in child support, and gets to see his children only on weekends. All three of his children hate themselves, and all three are facing behavioral issues and rage indescribable. But I will say this, Todd's wife is free. Bethany's husband grew up in church and went to a Christian university. Somewhere in their marriage, he became addicted to porn. When she confronted him with it, He became angry. Over the course of the next year, he quit going to church, abandoned her, and married another woman. Now he lives with her and ridicules the church every time his kids are around. Meanwhile, Bethany's life is miserable. But I will say this, Joe's free. Ben is a married man whose 56-year-old father recently left his mother unannounced and by surprise to run off with another woman. Ben says, I lost my father. My children lost their grandfather. My mom lost her husband, and our church lost a deacon. But at least Ben's father is free now. The adults, all the adults in Jenny's 21-year-old life have told her that having as much sex as she wants will give her power as a woman. Having friends with benefits would bring her happiness. But she's noticed the boys are happy to give her the benefits part. But none of them is willing to be a friend. She can't figure out why she is so full of depression. But at least she's free. 13 years ago, 13 years ago, Sarah's birth control failed. And she became pregnant from her live-in boyfriend. She went to Planned Parenthood, and they told her that the baby in her womb is not a human being. And for a couple of hundred dollars, they would kill the baby, and she could go about her life. She did. Within the year, the boyfriend had abandoned her, and now every time Sarah sees a 13-year-old child, it hurts her to remember her baby. But I will say this, at least Sarah's free. Hey, you know what, guys? These aren't accidents. This sexual system was deliberately and meticulously built by Americans. These are the desired outcomes, not accidental outcomes. And what we might say that if you have a hundred or a thousand people who've gone through this, that would be a terrible country. We don't. We have tens of millions of people who have had to go through this. And I know of no other language than civilizational suicide to create a world like that. A couple of years ago, 
Uh, J.D. Vance came out with the book Hillbilly Elegy. It's a fascinating book describing how he grew up in a dysfunctional family in Appalachia. His family moved to Ohio. Essentially, he tells his story about the results of growing up in a home where the hedonism of America's sexual ethics were on full display. I can't obviously even summarize the book, but I can say this. He talks about his adverse childhood experiences as PTSD. PTSD. Y'all know we have tens of millions of children in America. I'm not talking about thousands. 19 million children in America are growing up without their two parents. 19 million children. That's 25% of America's children. By the way, in case you're wondering, you want to know what the worldwide rate is? 25% in U.S., you know what the worldwide rate is? 7%. This Christian nation is three times worse than the world. You know what it is in Nigeria? 4%. You know what it is in China? Again, I, I love the Chinese. We got Chinese people. You are, we love you. They are so committed. It takes a Chinese person a long time to make a decision for Jesus. You know why? Because they're serious about that commitment. And when they're baptized, they hang in there. But I'm just going to say, in China, you know how many children are growing up, what the percentage is without their mother and their father? 3%. Not bad for a non-Christian nation, is it? As I said, if I were Chinese, I wouldn't be worried much about the U.S. We're committing suicide. 25% of the U.S., 19 million of our children. You teach in school? Is this not what you have to deal with all day long? Isn't this what you have to deal with all day long? Children coming from these families that are collapsing in America? Vance says this is what it was like to grow up. He said, I had poor grades, grew up in depression, sleepless nights, constant stomach issues, loneliness. I was cursed at, insulted, humiliated by the many men who moved in and out of my mother's life. I grew up being shoved, grabbed, having things thrown at me, being beaten, feeling no support at all, living in the constant presence of alcohol and drugs, watching my mother be physically abused, surrounded by attempts at suicide. I grew up in terror. I want you to know that is not an accident in America. This didn't accidentally happen. This is exactly what secularism's hedonistic sexual ethic was designed to accomplish. It's not an accident. And it's why holiness is so important. It's why the Christian witness is so important. Because what Christians bring to this occasion is a God-honoring way of treating sex where people are elevated, where humans flourish, where children grow up being loved and cared for, where women aren't molested and assaulted and harassed by men. That's what we have to offer the world. And that's why we don't follow a hedonistic way. We follow the way of holiness. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's it's God's will that you should be holy, that you avoid sexual sin, that each of you learn to control your body in a way that's holy, honorable, not in passionate lust like pagans do. They don't know God. And don't take advantage of a brother or sister in this. Remember, sexual sin is not a victimless sin. Whenever you commit sexual sin, there is a victim. Paul says, I just remind you, the Lord will punish those who commit such sins. So here's what we do. We want to live holy lives where everything is aligned with the will of God. And in that world, 
The purpose of sex is to bind a man and a woman in a God-honoring marriage that produces God-honoring families. So Jesus lays it out, makes it once and for all simple. In the beginning, God made us male and female, brings us together, and what God joins together, we don't have a right to set it apart. So I'll put it this way. Jesus' teaching is simple. You don't have to remember all the sexual sins. Thank goodness, right? Can't even pronounce some of them. All you got to do is remember this. God's design is that sex is a beautiful thing. It ought to be pleasurable for one man and one woman in a committed married relationship for life. That's all you need to remember. And anything that's not this is either sinful or disordered or both. And by the way, Jesus doesn't have to list all the sexual sins, does he? If you're driving down the road and you're in a school zone and the sign says 15 miles per hour, it doesn't have to say not 16, not 17, not 18, not 19. It doesn't have to list all the things that you're not supposed to do. When it says 15 miles an hour, it's telling you that's now the standard. When Jesus says God made a male, female, brought them together, married them, and don't separate them, that's, that's enough. That's the sign. You don't need, we don't have to keep inventing new sins so that we can keep up with what Jesus teaches. It's actually pretty simple, which is why in Hebrews it just says, honor the teachings of Jesus. Honor it and keep this pure. So, I've made the argument that it's not just a difference between what pagans believe on sex and what Christians believe on sex, but I'm making the argument pagans are beginning to harass Christians. They want to bully us into accepting their, their sexual ethics. I want to say one reason why. It turns out that when we sin, we just need people to tell us it's not a sin. Isn't that something? Everybody wants to justify their sins. And so when pagans start to sin sexually, they just can't stand to have your witness in the room. So they need you to affirm their sin. And if you don't, they'll start passing laws or they'll throw you off Amazon or they'll make sure that you don't get access to Facebook. They're going to do whatever they have to do to make sure there's no witness in the room to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. By the way, it's not just pagans. We all do that. It turns out we might not be able to live with, humans might be able to live without God, but we can't live without a devil. So we always have to have somebody we can say is wrong. We always have to have a devil around. So what are we going to do as Christians? Well, I've already mentioned a couple of things. The first week, we're going to make a decision. We follow Jesus. We're not going to cave. If you cave on this, the last witness the world was going to get is now silent. You cannot cave on this. Second, we're going to remind ourselves we're fighting with the weapons of spirit. This is a spiritual battle. And then today, I want to encourage you to commit to holiness. If you're wondering, what does that look like? Let me say a few things. The first thing is that now in the 21st century, virtually, but maybe not all, but virtually all of us are sexual sinners. It pains me to say it. It's humiliating to say it, but I have sinned sexually many times. I'm sorry to say it. Um, my guess is that probably 60 to 70% of the people in this room regularly look at pornography. Uh, it, with the males, it's even more than with the females. With females, it's a surprising number. Probably the starting point is for us to recognize now just how serious sexual sin has become in America. It won't do for us to pretend like, well, we're the righteous ones and everybody else is the unrighteous one because most of us now have a long history of sexual sin. If you're, if you're more than 12 or 13 years old, so maybe we should start with some humility. We need to acknowledge that it's a very sexualized world. 
This is the only time I'll ever quote Friedrich Nietzsche, I think, in a sermon. But he did make the observation. He was a pagan, an atheist. He was a terrible human being in a lot of ways, but he's pretty smart. He made the observation it's bad to live in cities because there are too many lecherous people. What he's really saying is that it's not so much that sex is a great temptation. It's the fact that we keep exciting our sexual instincts. I'll put it in the language of Joseph, Joseph Peepers, a philosopher who's, so he's a philosopher of the work of Thomas Aquinas. And summarizing Aquinas, he says Aquinas makes the argument that it's not the enticement of sex that's causing so many problems. It's the fact that we keep stimulating that lust. In other words, the fact that every song is about sex, every TV program is about sex, every marketing strategy is about sex, every billboard is about sex, every outfit is designed to accentuate sex. Sex is in every sermon, it seems. What he says is the fact that it's all around us is what's making it so bad. As he says, if humans left, were just left alone in an isolated environment, we'd sin a whole lot less. Actually, I think that's true. I've asked the question, why did granddaddy Joseph Young, who met his bride in World War I in South England, Plymouth, England, in 1918, why did he not, he didn't struggle like the rest of us do with sexual sin. I promise you he didn't. Probably didn't think that much about sex. You know why? Because in his world, he didn't see it every time he turned around. Every, every time you turn around in America, you see it. So I'm going to tell you something. I'll hesitate to tell you this, but this, I'm going to tell you something that's true. I read somewhere that you're 10 clicks away from pornography on your cell phone. I didn't believe it. I clicked, I put the word beach in. I started with beach. I put several words in. I started clicking on my phone. And sure enough, let me tell you, you're not even 10 clicks away sometimes. Sometimes 15 or so. I put pretty, the word pretty in. I put several words in. There you are, 10 clicks away from porn anywhere you go on your phone. Y'all don't follow my lead on that. You're going to just, just trust me. It doesn't work out well. I'm suggesting that because it is such a salacious environment, it's a really hard thing for us. So we'll be humble about it. We need to be humble. And that leads to the second point. Repent of it. Don't, don't give in to it. Repent of it and get the help you need. Sexual addiction, sexual sins are very serious and very difficult to escape. We have a Celebrate Recovery ministry here, and it has helped so many people escape from the bondage of sexual sin. It's a form of bondage. And third, oh, let me, let me, I'm going to do, actually, let me do these texts. Yeah, I forgot this one. I'm going to go to this one because this, this is one of the best texts in the world for people who are enslaved to sin. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, I want you to know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here is the most beautiful phrase for some of us in the Bible. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of the God. In other words, you can be set free from bondage. I mean, we don't have to stay in bondage. These, the, the Corinthians were every bit of this. And Paul says, no, Christ can set you free. So I just want to make sure we understand when we're struggling with it. Sometimes he sets some of us free instantly. For some of us, it may be years in the sanctification process. But keep telling yourself there is freedom, freedom in Christ. And don't give up on it. And number three is an important one. Refuse to capitulate to false teachers. 
So we just need to be honest. There are a lot of Christians who have now switched teams and they are now adopting pagan sexual ethics and telling us that's what Jesus would want us to do. You cannot capitulate to that. You will rob the world of its final Christian message on sexuality if you give in to the pagan ethics. You can't do it. I'm going to tell you how it typically works. Let's take a minister. I'm just inventing a name here. Church of Christ minister. By the way, it's happening to a lot of Church of Christ ministers. We'll call him Job. He's preached 30 years on biblical sexuality. Suddenly, his 24-year-old son has come home and said, Dad, I'm gay. I've got a partner. I'm thinking about marrying him. And if you preach on against same-sex activity again, I want you to know I'm not coming to see you anymore because now you're preaching against me. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you, you know what Joe does. First of all, Joe's life is disrupted by his son's announcement. Second, Joe says to his friends, we need to dialogue what the Bible actually says about this. That's, that's, what, that's the next thing Joe does. I want a dialogue. By the way, dialogues are fine, but man, sometimes when I hear let's have a dialogue, I think, oh, not another one. I know where this is headed. After Joe has his dialogue, he starts to recruit team members because nobody wants to stand alone on a position. I will just say this. If you stand against what the Bible teaches on sexuality and so forth, I already, listen, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go find, you may have total strangers around you, but you will find at North Boulevard, if you disagree with what the Bible says, by the way, it's okay to disagree with David Young. Even I disagree with me half the time. But if you disagree with what the Bible says, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go find some other disgruntled person who doesn't like what the Bible says. You're going to recruit a team and you're going to lead a charge. It happens. That's how church works. You'll find the other disgruntled people. There'll be a little team form. You got nothing else in common, but you're all against the Bible on this one. That's what Joe does. He recruits a team. He finds a scholar who strokes his beard and says, well, actually, men having sex with men in the Bible doesn't mean men having sex with men. It means something else. Once he's recruited his team, he rejects what the Bible teaches. And then, and this is always the worst one, he starts to attack people who believe the Bible. Because remember, he might can live without a God, but he can't live without a devil. And now you're the devil for believing what the Bible says. You want an illustration of that? This woman, Nadia Bolz-Weber, grew up in a Church of Christ on the front range of Colorado. She went to Pepperdine University. Then she went off into the world. I don't know the whole story. She tells her story. She's, she's not unashamed to tell her story. When she came back, she came back to the Lutheran Church now with a fully embraced pagan ethic, sexual ethic. Foul mouth. If you just look at her Twitter account, you can't even see it. There's so much foulness in there. Vulgar, vulgar filled with rage. Um, she lives in Colorado Springs, or she at least did. Coincidentally, that's where Jack Phillips lives, the baker who was sued. So Jack Baker, by the way, was sued because he would not write an artistic piece celebrating something that violates his religion. As soon as the Supreme Court, as soon as the Supreme Court rejected the lower court's rulings, a group of other people came and they've now sued Jack. He's been in litigation for seven years, hundreds of thousands of dollars. As I said, even though there are a dozen bakeries within a mile and a half, I said five, it's even closer. Because you see, they don't want a cake out of him. They want to destroy him because he's a Christian. So Nadia Bolz Weber published a book two years ago called Shameless in which she says that the biblical sexual ethic must be burned to the ground. 
I'll put it in her words, although I can't use all of her language because she's so pornographic in what she says. She says about the biblical sexual ethics, and I quote, burn it the F down. She describes in her book how one of her members went through and ripped the pages out of the Bible that disagreed with her sexually until they were left with just a small Bible. But now, Bolzweber says, she's free. That's a Christian pastor. That's a Christian pastor with a quarter of a million followers on Facebook, a Christian pastor who's spoken at Church of Christ universities. She tweeted this about a year and a half or so ago. My 12-step meeting is literally next door to Masterpiece Cake Shop of Annie Gay fame. So as an active resistant, I always choose to take up their best parking spaces. It's the little things. It's a picture of her flipping a bird. She's flipping a bird at a Christian pastor who has spent seven years and hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation simply trying to be a Christian. So what I'm telling you is that once we start to make a compromise, we inevitably become Saul who holds the jackets of those who are persecuting Christians. Woe to those who call evil good. Woe to those who call good evil. I'll put it in the language of Revelation 2. The two things, when Jesus writes to the seven churches in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the two things that upset him the most are the fact that Christians are willing to flirt with idols and the fact that Christians keep accepting sexual sin. And so to the church of Thyatira, Jesus says this, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual sin. I've given her time to repent of her immorality. She's unwilling. So I will cast her and everybody who follows her in a bed of suffering intensely. God is saying to us, guys, I do not want you to capitulate on these things. I don't care what the rest of the world does. I called you to holiness. Now, that's the hard part. Let me say this. We should hate that sin. Whew. But man, we should love that sinner. Absolutely lead with love. So I, I started working on this sermon in January of this year, and my blood has been boiling for nine months, as my wife can tell you. But that is not the right attitude. The right attitude is love. I was in Ohio. I was speaking at an event this week. I flew back last night from Ohio, and um, I was at the airport, and as I was at the airport, uh, I stopped to grab a little bite, and the guy that was serving, I, I sense the guy that was serving, I'm pretty sure the guy that was serving has, uh, has a very different sexual ethic than I have. I just want you to know, I gave him the biggest tip I've given in probably a month. If, you're, if you have a sexual ethic different from mine, you get to come to the front of my line, because I want to show you how Jesus loves you. If you come to this church with sin in your life, you get to go to the front of my line because I am a sinner too. And I am so grateful to have a church that loves me, not because I'm sinless, but in spite of my sin. We got to lead with love on this matter. So we don't hate the world for what it's done. I hate Satan for what he's doing. I hate the sin that I see that's destroyed. These little, this little girl, Elise, this six-year-old girl who can't stand Thanksgiving and Christmas because she has to watch her mother love somebody else more than her while she lives with her grandmother. I hate that. But I don't hate Elise and I don't hate her mother. I want to rescue her mother. I want to rescue a nation. I want to be on the, I, I want to remind you, we don't fight against our enemies. We fight for them. We fight to release them from their bondage. And to do that requires this very difficult balance of truth and love. And as I said last week, truth without grace ceases to be true. 
And grace without truth is a poison. And so Jesus came not to bring truth and not to bring grace. He came to bring grace and truth. And now for a hard one. We're going to come back to this one, but I'm going to tease you with this one now. When someone claims to be a believer in Jesus, when someone is baptized, they've been raised to follow Jesus, and then they turn their back on him for sexual sin, we have to love them enough to put boundaries up. If you think that no boundaries is a form of love, you're dead wrong. We need to love people enough to put boundaries when they sin. I'll put it in Paul's language, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, look, I told you don't associate with sexually immoral people, but I don't mean people of the world. In other words, when you find one of the world's sinners, go after them. I'm talking about anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but continues in unrepentant sin. Paul says, don't even have lunch with them. Now, how do you treat them? Do you treat them as enemies? No. Paul comes back to saying Second Thessalonians, don't regard them as an enemy. Treat them like a brother. Let me ask you a question. Is it wrong to have boundaries? Is it bad to have boundaries? One of the big problems that many of us have had in our relationships is we don't know how to do boundaries well. So I was talking about, I come back from Ohio. I rented this car. Pardon me. This is this tiny little rabbit here. This is a, a Toyota hybrid. And unbeknownst to me, they steer themselves. Now, I'm about to show my age. I've never driven a car that steers itself. And for 30 minutes, I kept thinking there's something wrong with the stability track on this car. I literally on the interstate pulled over and I was under the car trying to figure out what is wrong with this car. Like I try to steer and it keeps pulling back and so forth. And finally it dawns on me, this thing is steering itself. Literally, you can kick back and do this, except the car screams at you when you do that. Like put your hand, it really says put your hands back on the wheel. So you have to put your hand on the wheel. But I figured out, you know what it's doing? It's reading the lines on the highway. Now, for the other half of you who've been driving a car like that for the last 78 years, this is my initiation to a car that has steering assist or whatever you call it. I, didn't, I thought all that was still in Star Wars. I didn't know that really happened. You know how it does it? It's reading the boundaries. And so... It dawned on me, man, I'm really glad that thing has good boundaries. Because when an 18-wheeler goes by, that car, like, first of all, there's a little light on the mirror that says, there's a car over here. (laughs) And then I can feel it going this way, like, "Mm, get away from that thing. How many of you think boundaries are bad things? Boundaries are great things. When we have a brother in Christ who will not repent, and I'm not talking about people who are trying If if it takes you 30 years, I'm still on your team. I'm talking about people who said, I'm not going to try anymore. I think wrong is right. I think a sin is now a virtue. When we have that, we need to put boundaries up, first of all, to protect the innocent. And second, to remind the believer, hey, God's not okay with this, and I can't be okay with it either. I cannot be okay with this. I won't enable it. I won't celebrate it. I won't fund it. I will love you but I'm not going to be okay with this. And then last, let me end with this. Our view on sexuality is not, a, it's not all negative. It's not a terrible thing. It's a beautiful thing. What God teaches is a beautiful thing. I've shared this with you before. Many of you remember Scott McDowell who wrote the book, um, I think it was Scott, Josh McDowell. Scott McDowell is the president of Lubbock Christian. Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I don't know when he wrote it. He wrote it when I was young, so 78 years ago or 
120 years ago, whenever. His son, Sean McDowell, is now a Christian apologist. And he was just writing, again, I've read this before, this is so, this is unbeatable. What would this world look like? So remember at least the little six-year-old, what would this world look like if everybody followed the teachings of Jesus on sexuality? What would the world look like? If everybody just said, all right, when it comes to sex, we're going to do what Jesus said. What do you think the world would look like? I'm paraphrasing. There would be no sexually transmitted diseases. There would be no abortions, no brokenness, no broken hearts from divorce. Every child would have both a mother and a father and the unique love that only a mother or a father can offer. There would be no rape, no sex abuse. No women would be mistreated in the office or harassed by the lustful men who work with them. No sex trafficking, no prostitution, no pornography, no need for a Me Too campaign. There would be no AIDS, no herpes, no HPV, no syphilis. There would never again be an unwanted baby, never again an unwanted baby. There would never be any more crude or degrading sexual behavior. There would be no deadbeat dads. No man would ever again abandon their wives and children for a younger woman. There would be no abandoned children. Think of the healing and flourishing that the ethics of Jesus would offer this world. That's what we have to offer. And that's why we're going to stand firm on what the Scriptures teach. So I want to invite you to make that commitment to yourself. I'm standing firm. I'm going to do it lovingly, graciously, but I'm not going to back down. Let's stand up and sing.